Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about girlhood. Um, I thought a good place for us to start is to kind of define what girlhood is. Because I think culturally, girls don't have a lot of agency. I think it's like a path to womanhood. And not there's not a lot of thought given to girls themselves and what, what kind of agency they have in our culture. I feel like, um, you know, most of the people who study girls... And, you know, when it came about as kind of a study, I think it was a lot about feminists trying to figure out how they became who they were and not so much about, like, the actual experience of girlhood. So I think it might be a good place to start to kind of talk about that problem when thinking about girls. I mean, for me, it's hard to think about childhood generally, um, especially in the United States, as something that is out, absent or outside of trauma. Um, and I think that that trauma looks different, you know, depending on the marks of identification that are on the bodies of children, like whether it's race or whether it's um, gender or whatever, class certainly. So I think that a defining feature of childhood that it's a, that's important is trauma, probably because I think about it and write about it so much. And for girls, I think about trauma not just in like violence enacted on the body by structures of power but also um, the denial of agency mostly through the denial of information as a traumatic act so I'm thinking um, right now about abstinence only education and purity culture as being traumatic interventions on girl bodies because of course we know that purity only applies to girls and it does not apply boy to boys. Boys don't wear purity rings. Boys don't go to purity balls with their mothers. Boys don't have a virginity that they can lose or give up in the same way. You know, absence-only education, too, is like the withholding of information about bodies from all children, but I think it's especially devastating for girls to not have access to comprehensive sex education, to have the language to talk about their body, to have the language of sexual health or just like body health generally. I guess I would say trauma. I think also play. Obviously, I always come back to play because that's like the vector in which I exist in the world. So I think that there are ways that we need to think and rethink about how play for all kids, but especially kids who are at risk of violence or who are living through violence, create their own fantasyscapes and play worlds where they can disappear and hide and evade um, oppressive structures that traumatize them. So in the same way that I've talked on earlier episodes and earlier seasons about the importance of play as a response to social oppression, I think we can look to childhood for ways that kids see play as a tool of resistance and resilience. What do you think about that? I think as far as kids are able to use their imagination, that's a productive form of play. But I do think that there's a lot of limitations because, I mean... Gender is so, it's so stark, especially with kids, because they mm -hmm. don't really make their own decisions. 
and there's this like oppressive heteronormative culture that's telling them who they should be. And a lot of their play is framed around consumption. Mm -hmm. Like if you go into toy aisles, there's like a boy aisle and a girl aisle. And there's a lot of expectations that are weighted with those toys. Boy toys are like building and encourage math and science and exploration. And girl toys encourage caretaking and playing with dolls and beauty and Mm -hmm. makeovers and design. And I think those, even like if kids are using their imaginations and not just the physical toys... Because those that's like a frame that they understand play, their imagination also has the weight of those expectations. And so like, you know, if you're playing doctor with your friends, the boys are the doctors a lot of the times. And that's an imaginative play, but it's not necessarily liberating. No, I mean, I think that a lot of the rigid gender role constructions are, come out in, in you know, play mm-hmm. that reinforce... Um, the socioeconomic dimensions of gender. You know, I've been reading a bunch of this nature deficit literature about kids growing up today and not having so much access to unsupervised playtime outside and not having so much access to nature. And while that literature is very white, it's mostly written by white people about white kids. Um, I have been thinking a lot about what it means to structure play around consumption and not to structure it around stewardship or conservation or preservation or environmental relationships with not just the earth, but also animals. And thinking about that as a space for progressive, thoughtful engagements with alternative forms of experiencing childhood. You know, I think we have to start with people, though. You know, this literature that you're talking about, which is white and it's like white people of a certain class. I mean, they have less and less access to people who aren't like them. Oh, yeah. In totally. play situations. And I think we have to start there. Parents do not need to be restricting their kids from playing with kids who aren't like them. Or like controlling those environments so securely. Or like doing the play date thing, which is very popular among parents of a certain class. Where the parents have to like each other first. And then their kids get to interact and then that's a really really confined set of parameters that these kids are exposed to in play situations they're only exposed to people who are like their them like yeah, their parents i mean you know the thing is is that the education scholars will tell you that the segregation of play is caused by and correlates to the privatization of public education and the resegregation of urban centers and suburbs. And so there, I think it's super useful to think about the way that spatial segregation influences childhood, especially for girls, because we know that boys get more outside time, they get more unstructured play, they're allowed to take up more physical space, they're allowed to take up more physical risk, even at like hyper-structured places like playgrounds. And so if we think about segregation as a structure of whiteness, it's also a structure that builds gender and it builds bodies, abled or disabled bodies. You're not incorrect that thinking about how people understand facilitating play is an important part of thinking through the relationship between play and trauma for kids, but especially for girls, because their options to be independent, you know, as agents of play is so limited, it's becoming more and more and more narrow. 
in some ways for some girls. You know, on the other hand, in places where you see hypersegregation and mass incarceration and hyper policing and surveillance and busted schools with no investments, then you also see in some ways more mobility. And so that's both liberating and dangerous like most things are, right? So you have kids who grow up a little bit faster because they have so much more mobility, you know, in urban spaces or spaces where they're not as chaperoned, but then they also have higher degrees of contact with the state and state apparatuses of, of oppression. And that can be dicey, especially for, for kids of color, as we know, you know, in urban centers. So there is this tension, I think, between play and trauma. You know, there are variables that are hyper-present, but in varying degrees of relationality for all kids, but, you know, especially for girls. You know, you and I were talking before we started recording about girl power, right? This phenomenon of marketing girl power as a way of thinking through girlhood, both as a kind of commodity fetish and as a kind of self-esteem empowerment sort of move. Do you want to talk about that as sort of like a dimension of postmodern girlhood? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of depictions of girl power, and I mean, they've been important for like the experiences of a lot of young girls. But I do think that girl power as a movement hasn't been very successful at distancing girlhood from these celebratory attitudes towards patriarchal norms. So I feel like, you know, the standards that girl power generally promotes are still about individuality, yeah, beauty, and it still adheres to like a pretty heteronormative sense of what it is to be a girl. We're, you know, and we talk about the importance of community and intersectionality and cooperation, and those things are just pretty absent from a lot of girl power narrative. A lot of like being a girl and establishing yourself as a girl and saying like I am a girl. Uh, involves acting within <laughs> like what the culture expects a girl to be. So you're wearing makeup, you're wearing dresses, or you're looking like a girl mm-hmm. in some sense. And I don't, I don't know how much power that gives girls because women are systematically oppressed. Women and girls are systematically oppressed. So <laughs> if you're continuing to promote like your separate the gender separation, then yeah. you're continuing to deny power to yourself. Are you not? <laughs> well, I've been trying to think about like moments in the last year since the 2016 election about hopefulness about girl culture. And are there signs that there's a different relationality pertaining to girlhood after the Trump election? And so I've been thinking a lot about the resurgence of Teen Vogue and Lauren Duca in particular, writing all of these stories about the political structures that affect girlhood. I think that's been a super positive thing. I, and I'm kind of thinking about writing about it because I see all these adults that are sharing the Teen Vogue stories, which is very interesting to me because it's creating a kind of online readership that's propelling traditional print media and people who are buying Teen Vogue for their daughters to read as a way of supporting a framework for politicizing girlhood in a way that is it is definitely different. I mean, I feel very lucky because I had, you know, by all accounts, a pretty great girlhood, even though I grew up 
you know, poor-ish, um, I had a lot of freedom and I was encouraged to be super independent. So when I was little, because I loved politics, like everybody just sort of like turned me loose on it. You know, it was a reasonable thing for me to investigate on my own. But if I had been able to have Teen Vogue or something like that instead of like fashion magazines, I mean, I just think about how much intellectual stretching my brain would have gotten so much younger. And I think that that's very interesting. But of course, it's that's racialized in class. But what I do like about Teen Vogue is that they are writing these really interesting articles about the erasure of blackness in certain structures of popular culture or, you know, seeing men and boys as victims of rape or thinking internationally about U.S. foreign policy and how it affects women and girls um, and all kinds of people abroad. And that seems to be an important intervention in a, in a different one than the girl power cartoon branding commodity fetish stuff that was so late 90s turn of the century. So uh, that's one thing that I've been thinking about in terms of what does a post-Trump girl power look like. I think it in some ways it's a, it has to become some sort of cudgel to work against the post-truth paradigm you know, and I don't know if it goes back to like hyperrealism and <laughs> investigative journalism. It seems weird to think it would snap back that way, but there's something about that being a space for thinking about the coming of age as a politicized thing, as girlhood as a as a political structure. I feel like people are able to interact more and more than ever with their peers, even when they're not face to face with them. And there's a lot of very negative social pressure that comes through having to maintain a certain kind of Instagram following. When I substitute talk in high schools, people were measuring your value based on how many people followed you on Instagram. People's attention is being shifted from publications that actually can't provide like that kind of value to girls. The attention is shifting to like people interacting with kids their own age yeah. more and more. I mean, the value of the network, clearly, if anything, that that Facebook has done is it's increased the value of the public network as a tool of social promotion. And I think that that, it, it hurts women for sure and girls because it is the same kind of social climbing that promotes compulsory heterosexuality and white supremacy, but... On the other hand, it has the potential for solidarity, I think. And Instagram is not the place for political solidarity at all. I think we're on the cusp of a change, especially if the net neutrality law is not repealed. You're going to see such a massive segregation in access to the Internet. It's going to totally change childhood again in really, I think, profound ways, both in terms of access to information and then in terms of what social networks can carry as harbingers of capital or as ways of aggregating, you know, social value. And that it's, it's too soon to tell how that's going to roll out. I will say that as somebody who grew up in Ohio and had a childhood there and is now raising a daughter in the South, the norms of Southern girlhood are so difficult to navigate. I was telling somebody the other day, I'm like, I just don't understand the competitive, the competitive mothering here in the South. 
And the way that the Southern inferiority complex influences the parent-child dynamic, especially as it's performed publicly in public schools, it's so foreign to me. Because even though I went to a grade school, middle school, high school that had similar demographics to the school district that my kid is in now, and they were similar size public schools and all that stuff, similar income-ish, um, there was not the competitiveness of the family unit when I was, not until I was in high school. It was just not the same kind of thing. And so part of that, I'm sure, is generational, but part of it is absolutely regional. And so... I think I'm grappling with the southernness and the dimension of that identity and its connection to whiteness and segregation in public schools in the South, which is just a totally different creature than the one that I grew up in. A lot of families are dealing with such ambivalence about public education that that is also creating and distributing different kinds of trauma so the privatization and charter school movement is creating more trauma for public school kids, right, who can't opt out, who don't have the finances to opt out. And then the white kids go to charter schools because they can't afford the private schools, but the parents don't want them to go to school with black and brown kids or kids who are poor. And so, you know, I really see the charter school movement as something that is exploiting the differences in regions to disaggregate social rights in a way that also then amplifies the trauma of childhood for groups that are marginalized. I don't see any kind of end to this perpetuation of a girl without agency. Yeah. <laughs> and a, a girlhood as like a way of complementing a social structure that will then devalue them for their entire lives. When girlhood is celebrated kind of or expressed in culture, it even carries the connotation of being lesser than men yeah, or subordinates. men. like, I'm just a girl. That's a thing that people say. I'm just a girl. Like, how much can you expect from me? Right. So that is just an expression in itself of weakness. Well, and of the limitations. Right. It's the expression of profound understanding of this permanent limitation because no penis. I feel like the girl is a category that should carry like the weight of social implications. There is validity in their existence. I mean, that's... Yeah. I, that goes without saying. Like, that... Ever, it doesn't go right. without saying. There are whole cultures, <laughs> including ours, that, that don't value that. Girl. I mean, obviously, I'm a hater on that. I think one of the best things that I saw, I want to say that it was in 2017, was that a bunch of girls got together for their quinceañeras and showed up at the Texas State Capitol to protest Greg Abbott's policies towards immigrants and his opposition of the DREAM Act and his ambivalence on the on um, DACA. And I thought that was the coolest, I mean, one of the coolest things that I have seen girls do as girls. And I think that there was a bunch of documentation of two of girls at Standing Rock protesting, you know, the government takeover of tribal lands that are really interesting. So I think that one thing that I would like to see more of is representations of non-white girls acting as political agents. I mean, obviously, that's what I'm interested in. But also, I think that's where solidarity and political power come from. I do think that in raising a girl, I've seen a lot more empowering and diverse notions of heroism among girls 
especially I did a piece on Wonder Woman for a con- conference after Brie Newsom scaled the state house flag in South Carolina. And there were all of these drawings of Brie Newsom as a black Wonder Woman. And so then there was this proliferation of images on the internet, all kinds of art about disabled Wonder Woman and disabled and black Wonder Woman and queer Wonder Woman and young Wonder Woman. And, you know, obviously comic scholars and pop culture scholars have looked at Wonder Woman since you know, the world wars is a sort of as a repository of anxiety and ambivalence about the strength of women, especially after the Rosie the Riveters were forced back into the home after World War II. But it'll be interesting to see if that has any real utility or if it's just part of the circle jerk of consumption, right, where women are told, oh, no, it's changing. You have more options now. Look at how much more power you have. And then it's all fundamentally foreclosed by glass ceilings and wage gaps and domestic violence and gun murders in the home and maternal and infant mortality, you know. I'm like, on the one hand, I want to see the representational politics evolve. And on the other hand, I need the politics to keep up. (laughs) I need the politics to actually change. That's one of the reasons why I think I can't I can't get overinvested in popular culture because it's not really tracking with, you know, major intellectual evolution. Mm-hmm. One thing that's been kind of circulating in popular culture that I think relates to this conversation is um, the phenomenon of the cool girl. And so this is kind of a way of framing girlhood that I think is interesting. And it's basically an extreme version of what people perceive the girl to already be. But basically, like, the cool girl is someone who complies with men and they laugh at their sexist oh, jokes yeah, sure. and they eat, they down burgers and slam beers and they're, like, basically pretty but without the feeling, you know. So it's, like, this hyper extension of what the expectation of a girl is, which yeah. is basically to prop up men. And so that was kind of circulating when uh, Gone Girl came out. Yeah. In a lot of depictions of girls in popular culture and in TV or girls who are like, they hang with the men and it's like a cool thing to be like, I'm a guy's girl. And that's like a popular depiction of women (laughs) because of course men have all of this influence in most of the media. I don't know. I I think that's an interesting pop culture phenomenon that's kind of even aggravated how people think about what the ideal girl is and what, like what kind of expectations you have. Like you're supposed to be pretty and skinny, but you should eat a burger, like don't eat a salad. No, I mean, girlhood is a series of double binds that are completely irresolvable because of white supremacy and hyper-segregated wealth among men and other things. But I think girlhood has always been difficult to navigate. I think it will continue to be so. One thing that I think that I like is that you see more narratives that, especially in kids' books where girls are solo heroes or they operate in teams of girls where they're doing interesting stuff. And I think that kids' book culture is way better now than it ever was. I think that's the place where you've seen the most sort of um, resistant strategies for depicting what the promises of girlhood could bring uh, way better than TV, <laughs> way better. And film is always the last because it's the hardest and the most expensive and it's totally controlled, you know, by the, by the major corporations. 
But I think girls, their depictions and their opportunities to exist in different relation to power are way better in book culture now than they've ever been before. First of all, there's more cultural awareness that this is a problem. Yep, totally. The Bechdel test is great. Yep. And a lot of parents are aware of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like, it's definitely a, a goal that people are thinking about in terms of, like, creating good <laughs> good media. Good content, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what I like about those things is that is that they reject romance as the plot narrative. I think basically anything in the culture that eschews romance as the driving narrative force is good for girls. Like anything. It, I don't care what else. You know, as long as romance is not the centerpiece. I mean, obviously, or bullying or, you know, structural oppression. But I mean, like as a plot device, as long as it's not hyper-focused on hetero-romance, that is such a traumatic improvement in deprogramming girls to not have these wild, fantastical projections of heterosexual marriage as a panacea to social trauma. And I think that's a, that's progress to have stories that yeah. don't hinge on romance. That's important because I also think people define girls define themselves like until they're of age, they define themselves by like their relation to men mm -hmm. in that way. Like the age of consent is like a big milestone, mostly for women, and that's always been a, been a, a big thing. Like culturally, like when are women? of age when do girls become women basically and it totally relates to when they'll be able to like marry someone <laughs> i think that that's really about leaning in both the cool girl that you talk about and then also ages of consent and sort of defining these arbitrary but socially uh useful time periods in the lifespan of girlhood are really important in propping up heteropatriarchy because they really teach girls how to contort their bodies and their minds and their expectations into what popular culture projects as male fantasy, which is obviously damaging for all of everybody. Right. <laughs> you know? Like the rigid gender roles are real bad for everybody. But I like that there are media outlets that can help reshape that expectation and push back against the leaning in. But this is why I think that the absence of uh, body education, absence of comprehensive sex education is a trauma because that kind of information is really necessary in undermining the lean-in phenomenon among girls that makes them into these docile, anti-thinking bodies, right? These docile bodies for boys and later for men and... I don't. I mean, the more information is better, and the younger, the better. I was thinking. I'm talking about aging. Like, like youth is like a prioritized for women, and so like there's this fear of aging that happens, or like being like a perpetual girl. I mean, that's a real thing. But I also feel like the, as women age, they also still have girls inside of them. So I think it's useful in thinking about the girl as being a permanent state of womanhood. I think it's also worth thinking about boys being a permanent state of manhood. Or, I mean, insofar as men and women are, you know, categories of social 
relationality. I feel bad. I feel a, a kind of empathy and also maybe some pity for the women who are trying to make themselves look younger and younger and younger and younger and younger. And it's distorting their view of themselves and what they can accomplish and what they should be doing with their time and how they should be spending the less money that they earn than men. You know, I, I feel bad for them wanting to have baby smooth skin and prepubescent bodies and punishing themselves in the gym and all of those things. At the same time that I recognize that the culture absolutely participates in age discrimination. And so as we raise the retirement age and short circuit social security, women are going to be totally hosed in the workplace as they age and are not going to have unions to protect them and they're not going to have generational wealth to propel them and they're not going to have retirement and they're not, I mean, all of that middle class stuff that was so intrinsic to the baby boomers building any kind of generational wealth and power is going to be completely withheld from those women. So I feel two ways about it. I feel like sad and, and some pity, you know, for that being the hamster wheel that so many women feel like they're on. And then I also, it's just like a, just like a total recognition of the political reality of a culture that fetishizes and objectifies girls as the ideal woman. Because what it really is saying is that the only people who exist as women are girls, and they exist as girls because they don't have any social power. And they exist as sex objects. Yeah, sure. I mean, that is kind of the sad reality of exploring girlhood is because you are faced with the way that girls think about aging, women think about aging, and how so much of it relates to their outward appearance, um, and how so much of it relates to their u- utility for sex and their utility for companionship with men specifically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also feel like we're in this very interesting moment. We've already recorded an episode on shame, but I'm thinking about writing an essay on shame and thinking about how in this political moment, body shame is being weaponized against the president by lots of people, but certainly liberals, and about what it means to concede to the weaponization of shame, even against men in power, and how that calcifies the use of shame against women who are not in social power, who have varying degrees of social power in comparison to white men and in comparison to people of color, especially men of color. And I think that that is probably really, I think it's really bad. I think the fat shaming is revolting. I think that the body politics around Trump's body speak to a much larger um, ambivalence about bodies in American life and about the expectations about what kind of space they should occupy or shouldn't occupy and how they should be disciplined and how they should be punished. And so I think that there's something to be said about why it's totally bad to shame Trump for his body, and it also connects to his policies that undermine the political efficacy of girls and women and people of color and the LGBTQ community. I think they're opposite sides of the same coin that work fundamentally to the same ends to undermine the political power of groups who don't have access to the same vectors of rights that the political elites do. Thanks for listening. 
These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.